0: Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett. You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio, where I've been questioning all of the most important aspects of consensus reality since 2006. If you like this kind of radio, please go to truthjihad.com. You'll land on a Heresy Central page where you can find all of my work. You can also go to kevinbarrett.substack.com and subscribe to get early access and free downloads.
1: Well, These are important questions.
0: I understand that. Highest moment the last 8 years.
1: Hmm. Highest moment the last
0: 8 years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9/11 itself. <laughs> Welcome. This is the weekly live Truth Jihad radio broadcast. I'm Kevin Barrett doing this broadcast on all kinds of different alternative networks since 2006. I found a home for many years now here on revolution.radio, the greatest of listener-sponsored networks. I also put these shows on noliesradio.org and the Un's Review that's com, both excellent alternative outlets. Tonight we're going to talk about myth and science, uh, the illusory <laughs> uh, big picture that are, are drawn for us by the authorities in various fields uh, are often uh, quite false. And indeed, we're getting false information from all kinds of sources. Sometimes the mainstream is right about something, such as in the flat earth debate. The flat earthers are obviously <laughs> way out on a limb. Uh, and that's what we'll talk about in the second hour when philosophy professor and lawyer Sterling Harwood comes on to ask whether the literal interpretation of Christianity just died on Mars with the apparent discovery of traces of ancient microbial life. In other words, if you literally think God only created life on planet Earth uh, and that it it's flat <laughs> and that that's what the Bible tells you, yeah, I guess you might have a problem. And Sterling will try and tell us that some people may have that problem. I'm skeptical. Anyway, first hour, a perhaps more pertinent <laughs> debate uh, about science versus myth. And in this one, it turns out that the pro-vaccine side of the vaccine debate is the mythologist side. And the skeptical, uh, quote-unquote, anti-vax side is probably closer ...to getting the scientific facts right. A lot of people are going to find that hard to believe, but not if they read the new book, Turtles All the Way Down, Vaccine Science, and Myth. It's a terrific book, very well-referenced, but also user-friendly, beautifully written, and beautifully edited by my guest, Zoe O'Toole. She's worked with Children's Health Defense, that's RFK Jr.'s famous uh, group that works not only on vaccines, but all kinds of other important health issues and uh i think this is this is really the the best thing i've yet discovered on the vaccine debate so let's talk about it welcome zoe o'toole how are you
1: i'm just great i'm happy to be here and to talk about this book and i'm so glad to hear you say that because i feel this book is a game changer and if we can get it out to enough people it's going to change the perception overnight
0: it sure should it's Echoing a lot of things that I learned back in the 90s when I looked into this question and was angered <laughs> and disgusted. Uh, yeah,
1: as anyone would be if they really looked into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, but at that time I actually had to, it was very confusing. I had to look in all these different places and many of the mm. issues were ambiguous um, difficult to figure out. Uh, there were a lot of red herrings and sort of blind alleys and stuff. And this book really boils it all down to the gist of what people need to know to take part in the debate. And so, yeah, I I think it should be a game changer. So where did this book come from? And well, I understand it came from Israel and it's anonymously from
1: Israel. It was written originally in Hebrew and the authors are anonymous. And I and Mary Holland, my uh, co-editor, neither of us actually know who the authors are. And that's how secretive they have been.
0: It's like a double-blind project.
1: Yes. <laughs> the editors
0: yes. don't know who the authors are. <laughs> I guess the authors must know who the editors are, though, so I guess it's single-blind. Yes, single they
1: blind. do. They, they know blind. both of us. <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, and so, the, yeah, this this book I, I found that the the presentation is very convincing and rather than going off onto debatable sort of side tangents it really uh musters the the you know the crucial issues at stake in this debate and i wonder even though we don't know who the authors are uh wh- where where do you think this uh, this came from how did these people uh come up with this project and then if you don't really know then maybe how did you get interested in this issue
1: well, it's interesting. Um, I was working as the uh, editor of the blog at Thinking Moms Revolution. And so I was doing a lot of research on this stuff myself. I read the science and I would particularly read the s- studies that were held up as proof that vaccines are safe or that a particular vaccine was safe, or that a particular vaccine didn't cause whatever it was said to be not causing. And every single time I looked at a study, it didn't say what the media was telling us it said. And that started to piss me off, as you can imagine. <laughs> and um, so I started writing about it. And the more I wrote, the more pissed off I got, <laughs> And, uh, I did actually hear from one of the authors, um, several years ago before it, the original book was published. And he was talking about doing an English version at that point in time. And unfortunately, I couldn't devote, I was a single mom, couldn't devote that kind of time to something that would have been completely on spec. So I reluctantly said, I can't do this. But then Mary Holland went to Israel after the book was published and she saw it everywhere and she, um, she heard a, a voice disguised interview with one of the authors and, and was, just thought it was very compelling. And so she took it upon herself to get in touch with them and ask them to do an English version so when they did that they were originally working with Mary as um, an editor and then Mary is the president of CHD and of course she was overwhelmed so um, she asked them if they would be interested in working with me because she knew of my work and they said yeah we know her we want to work with her so um, so that is how I got involved.
0: Okay well I I, if you need a blurb from me um, I could say that this is the best thing out of Israel since Gilad Atsman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd dare uh, use that, but in any case, <laughs> Um uh, let's talk a little bit about the contents of the book. In, in sure. Yeah. So it, it starts out with the question of safety trials. And we've heard a lot about safety trials, at least those of us who've investigated the COVID vaccines. Uh, and so yeah. yeah, a lot of people now know what safety trials are and, the uh, the media tells us that every vaccine goes through these careful safety trials where
1: yes they, rigorously tested you yeah. hear that phrase rigorously.
0: yeah so so tell us about the rigorous testing process
1: <laughs> yeah the rigorous testing process now uh, the best what what they consider the gold standard for safety mm-hmm. testing and for efficacy testing of a drug a new drug particularly mm-hmm. is what they call a randomized control trial and preferably. It should be um, double-blinded and placebo-controlled. Now, uh, randomized means that there's no selection bias. The people who are coming into the trial, they're not assigned to a particular group based on any qualities they have. They're just randomly assigned to either the test group or the control group. Double-blind means that neither the researchers nor the subjects knows who is getting what. And therefore, that takes out any bias uh, with respect to reporting. Now, um, placebo-controlled is where we really have, it's the crux of the matter. A placebo is a biologically inert substance. Now, generally, you want to use something like saline. And in particularly when you're injecting something, you want it to be something that's really inert, that's not going to do anything to the body, so that when you are comparing what happens in the test group to what happens in the control group, you are seeing true effects of the substance, whatever it is. In this case, it would be a vaccine. You want to see that the efficacy that is you see is due to the vaccine, and you want to see that the Adverse effects are also due to the vaccine. But what we find, if you go back to the clinical trials for every single vaccine on the childhood schedule, and the book goes through every, every vaccine that is uh, recommended for children on the CDC recommended schedule up until the age of two, other than the influenza vaccine. And that's a lot of vaccines. Every single one of them. Not one was actually tested in this kind of placebo-controlled trial. Every single one was tested against either another vaccine, which means that they would have adverse events probably similar to the new vaccine, or um, what they call vaccine some antigen, which is the vaccine without the antigen. And in many cases, I don't know how much you know about um, these makeup of vaccines, but a lot of vaccines are made with adjuvants to boost the immune response. And the main adjuvant used in the United States is some form of aluminum salts. Now, aluminum has a very immunogenic profile of its own. It causes immune reactions. It is not a placebo. It is not a biologically inert substance. And yet, it is often contained in the placebo, and I'm saying that with quotation marks, I'm literally making the quotation marks right now, that is the placebo that the control group is given. So it's not a shock that the control group and the test group have similar rates of adverse events, and yet every single vaccine manufacturer uses this as an excuse to say, look, it's safe. It has about the same number of adverse events as the placebo.
0: And in some of the, the cases discussed in the book, it sure sure looked like um, the number of adverse events in both groups was unusually high compared so to high. somebody who never so came high. in and, and took part in the experiment.
1: <laughs> so high. I, so many kids going to the hospital. And this is supposed to be the same as the background rate? Right? I don't think so.
0: <laughs> right so that leads to the question of why in the world would they be testing these vaccines yes, in that particular i mean is it, did the price of salt go up so high that they couldn't afford saline solution
1: right right they, they're trying to tell you that oh no that that would be impractical um how, what's impractical about injecting someone with salt water that's the cheapest easiest most straightforward way you could do it so what is your excuse for not doing this and the only thing that makes sense is that it? they deliberately do it to hide the high rate of adverse events because people would say, oh, no, this is highly increasing my child's likelihood of ending up in the hospital with a fever and whatever. That's just the immediate reactions. We know that long-term reactions can be a whole lot more. But, yeah, what parent would say, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead, inject my healthy child, my healthy infant with something that might do long-term damage
0: yeah that, that's a pretty crazy process it, it you know if you if wanted to sell snake oil i suppose you could right? uh, prove it was safe and effective by doing <laughs> a placebo double blind controlled study where half the group gets your snake oil and then the other half gets some strychnine or arsenic right? or something like that right? oh, and yeah. boy you would have a your your group would do so much better than the control group yeah, that everybody oh, would have to come buy your snake oil <laughs> Hmm. well if if my uh, alternative radio business fails i have a, a new business model here to fall back mm. oh my goodness now these these people uh it, it it almost seems like criminal negligence if not worse uh it, it's just the the I, I i guess i have to wait and hear the other side of the story you know what what could possibly be their excuse for for doing this rather than doing real placebo trials
1: well what you keep hearing over and over again when you when you get a f- freedom of information act request and you, you get some truth what the the architects of this are saying in the background is we can't let anything harm the vaccine program so what you get is that the vaccine program is more important than the children who are subjected to it
0: that doesn't really make sense since it's all no, about no it doesn't make sense at children.
1: all Except that, you know, what it comes down to is, is that they are absolutely dedicated to the vaccine program. Now the question is, why are they dedicated to the vaccine program? And that, that there you're getting into some speculation, but, but power, money, these things, these uh, motives are, are there. They're definitely reasons for people to play with the f- truth.
0: So so you're saying that they've actually openly admitted that the reason that they're not doing genuine placebo trials, in other words, they're committing scientific fraud, is that they're protecting the vaccine program? I can't believe they would come right out and say that.
1: No, they wouldn't say that for that. What they would say, I don't know if you've heard about the the Simpsonwood um, meeting that was held after uh, Thomas Verstretten did – thimerosal study. It was a, a secret meeting held in Norcross, Virginia. I'm uh, not Virginia, Georgia, sorry, which is quite near CDC headquarters, but not at CDC. And at this meeting, there were plenty of um, vaccine manufacturers. And uh data was saying that the kids who had a lot of thimerosal containing vaccines in the first few months of their lives those kids were having neurological um issues like autism, ADHD, uh tics, things like that at much higher rates than kids who had not had a lot of early thimerosal so um so what those people discussed at this secret meeting that they didn't expect to ever come out to the public what those people said is, we have to protect the vaccine program.
0: So they say it in private, but they're. Yes. Well, what can they possibly say in public, though, to respond to this uh, criticism? Well, what
1: they do is they, they fudge it. They tell us, oh, no, 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 everything's, everything's wonderful. We've done these wonderful studies and everything. Vaccines are safe and effective. And that's what we get, right? Yeah. As if I always hear, When when I hear vaccines are safe and effective, I hear a a little, a few additional words added in there, as if to say all vaccines are completely safe and completely effective. And that's just absolutely not true. And yet that's the impression they're trying to give us.
0: Mm -hmm. It sure is one of those situations where it sounds like maybe they think they can't trust you with the truth. Yes. And, and that does, I've seen this kind of situation uh, in with regards to other issues as well. And typically what you end up getting is, is this kind of situation where there's a. there are two sides to the argument. One side is cast as the crazy conspiracy theorist. The yep. other side is cast as the voice of sanity and institutional normalcy. And if you actually look closely at the arguments on both sides, it turns out that the arguments coming from the voice of institutional sanity and normalcy is completely insane, and that at least some of the so-called conspiracy theorists are making sense. Uh,
1: well, that is absolutely the case in this case. And, and that's, that's what the whole book is about, basically, is the authors set out to make an irrefutable argument that says, these parents who are saying that it's unsafe, they're right. Listen to them.
0: Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's what RFK Jr. discovered when he first looked into this issue, too. And maybe you could uh, recount that story about how he uh, kind of took on a a tough Mm – uh, sidetrack to his career when you know he was out there doing his uh, i feel for the work.
1: man you know yeah. i mean he was he was on top of the world <laughs> he was doing uh, river cleanup and going around talking to people about the dangers of mercury and how we have to clean it up and get it out of the water supply and when he would go and he would give his um, his lectures there would be some autism moms the Mercury moms, who would come to hear him and they would say, listen, you don't know anything about this yet, but there's Mercury in vaccines and it's hurting our kids. And so finally, he had someone actually pretty close to him who said, you got to look into this. And so he did. And immediately when he did, he started to realize that the science isn't as it's being presented and that there was a very strong likelihood that Mercury was doing a lot of damage to a lot of children's brains. And so he, he was dragged kicking and screaming into this because he's not even a parent. He's Well, he's a parent, but his kids were already grown. They'd had their vaccines. So it, it wasn't his fight to um, to take on. And yet he did it. And for that, we are so grateful.
0: And it's interesting that when the mainstream responds to him, which they rarely do, it's mostly in ad hominem fashion. You know, We hear that, oh, he had a problem with this marriage, and one of his ex-wives was mad at him once. Or, you know, he did did this embarrassing thing like 30 years ago or something. So he's a really bad guy, so don't listen to anything he says. When they argue like that, it makes you really wonder whether they have any uh, actual evidence and logical arguments about the subject matter.
1: Well, that's actually one of the reasons why the... um the book uh, Turtles All the Way Down is that the authors are anonymous is because whenever you make an argument that is super strong and and RFK is making some super strong arguments he you know if anybody if there are any whistleblowers out there they're going to talk to him because he's the the guy who's going to listen so he knows a lot about this subject and just like the authors of Turtles All the Way Down who also know a lot about this subject, the arguments are super strong. And when the arguments are super strong, what's the only way you can refute it? You kill the messenger, right? So that's what they're trying to do with Bobby Kennedy. That's very difficult to do because he's a very bright man. But unless you are that strongly in the public eye, and already, you know, he's in, he's, still getting slammed right and left in the the media but anybody else anybody else is going to get just trashed their lives trashed without anybody addressing the argument and the authors wanted to keep the focus on the arguments
0: well that makes a lot of sense to me and speaking of RFK Jr. his book uh, which elicited all of these ad hominem attack-type non-reviews. They actually ignored it for months and months and months, and finally you know, it hit the bestseller list and stayed there and stayed there. So finally they brought out the big guns in the media, and they went after him in this ad hominem fashion. Uh, but an interesting aspect of the way they went after him was that they ignored what one would think would have been the most obvious uh, way of attacking him and shredding his credibility, which would have been talking about the fact that about half of his book is about the AIDS crisis, and it takes a strongly pro-alternative view of AIDS and you know these people who have argued against AIDS orthodoxy. And of course, that has all been uh, relegated to the conspiracy file by the mainstream, and right. so much of his book uh, is about that. It's about that. And so yeah. why, you know, the question arises, why didn't they attack him as an AIDS denier and probably a homophobe yeah. and so on and so forth instead of attacking him, uh, for, because he had a, you know, his, his divorced ex wife or whatever didn't like him six years ago or something. Mm. Like you know, that, that would have made so much more sense. Ron Unz wrote a really good article about this, pointing out, and his conclusion was that probably they didn't want to draw any attention to the AIDS issue because he might be right about
1: that I think he is right about that um, it, it's the it, you know i I'm a New Yorker going way back i I had friends who you know I have lots of gay friends I'm an, also an actor so the the combination means that i you know I've had a lot of contact with um, people who have AIDS or have had it head AIDS, and um, so this is a, a, a topic that comes close to home, and it's one that scares me to discuss as well. But reading the book, the modus operandi that um, Anthony Fauci—by the way, the book we're talking about is the real Anthony Fauci—the um, the way he operated. During that time period is very, very similar to the way he's operated in the last couple of years. And I've seen the studies on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And I've seen that how they were ridiculed and how doctors were had their medical licenses yanked and pharmacists were not allowed to dispense these medications which it turns out in other countries were saving lives so if that's the case if that's what's been happening the last couple of years how can i not look at the possibility that he was doing the same thing during aids that he was not letting people use medications that were saving lives right it's it's terrifying and very very sad and i think that one of the reasons why they wouldn't have gone after him for that was because his voice is is compassionate. I mean, he's he's pleading or speaking for the people whose lives were run roughshod over.
0: And that's what he's been doing in his advocacy for the uh, vaccine moms as well. And you know, yep. getting back to the turtles book, uh, turtles all the way down, vaccine science and myth. The uh, the other uh, kind of study that uh, the book argues needs to be done and would be done and long since would have been done if the uh, establishment were actually interested in finding out the truth about vaccine safety Mm. would be the VU studies, the vaccinated, unvaccinated studies, that is just looking at large pools of vaccinated people and unvaccinated people and comparing their health outcomes, especially in the area of chronic illness. And it just is mind boggling. That that hasn't been done, I and mean, the right. It, so it's a no-brainer,
1: right? Wouldn't it be yeah. the first thing you do?
0: Right. I mean, all the re- there are records there. You, know, you could do a retrospective study for peanuts, right? So how yep. how can they not yep. be doing that?
1: Oh, the justifications are that in that chapter they go over um, the Institute of Medicine's justifications for not doing. These studies and the, the Institute of Medicine acknowledges that they were not done. There were not no CDC sponsored or NIH sponsored studies out there that have done this. So why haven't they done this? They've got the data. They've got the vaccine safety data link, which has nine very big HMO practices with all the data they need. Plenty of unvaccinated kids to analyze, but they, they throw up straw man arguments saying, well, we can't do it. We can't do it because it wouldn't be ethical. It wouldn't be ethical to force kids into either the test or control group where the, you know, you have to vaccinate or not vaccinate according to that. Well, okay. Yeah. That wouldn't be ethical, but you don't have to do it randomized. If you're going to do a prospective study, you could do it such that, um, you take the people who were already planning to not vaccinate and use their children. As test subjects, yeah, there would be some selection bias, but it wouldn't be outrageous. You couldn't not correct for it or something like that. But then the the true thing is that nobody's even asking for that, really. What they've been asking for are epidemiological retrospective studies that they're doing all the time. This one wouldn't be any more expensive or any more difficult or any more unethical to do than the studies that are being done Every day. So they're, all of the arguments that they bring up are spurious. They're not, they're not real arguments. And so once you see that they're not real arguments, you have to think that there's another agenda at play. And there is. They don't want to do them. And why don't they want to do them? Well, the chances are really good that they have done them. They just haven't published the results. Because if they, if they wanted to convince parents that vaccines were fully safe and that they can trust their children with them, that would be the study to do. But they don't do those. What they do are studies to find out how to convince the parents, which doesn't make any sense unless they've already done the studies and they figure, oh, it doesn't look good for the vaccines.
0: So what is the scenario under which such a study would be done, but not publicized. Normally, when you're doing uh, big research studies, you have to apply for a grant. Uh, it takes a fair bit of money to do them. And so, what would be the mechanism for doing such a, a study that was going to be kept secret if the results were not what they wanted?
1: Well, the, the Verstraaten study that, um, that the CDC published in, I think it was 2003, they, I think, he started on it in 1999 and he found very high associations with thimerosal and, um, and autism and ADHD and speech delay, things like that. So, uh, so he found these, these very high associations and then he reworked the statistical analysis at least three times. And somewhere along the way, they had that Simpson Wood meeting in, um, in Georgia and he, he still couldn't get it to go away and he was trying to get it to go away. And there are CDC emails back and forth that, well, try this, try to inc- include the kids who are too young to have an autism diagnosis. That way it'll, it will spread it out. So <laughs> I have a, a background in electrical engineering and signal to noise ratio is a, is. Something that I understand really well. And just listening to these arguments is all I can see is they're trying to get rid of the signal. They're trying to get rid of the signal. And to a large extent, they were able to finally, they did publish that study in 2003. And you know what the result was? We couldn't say it was a neutral study. We couldn't say either way, whether thimerosal was affecting these kids.
0: Mm-hmm. So they they did get rid of the signal. So that that's one way yep. to do it, is to ma- just massively massage the study that you've already done. Right, so that and they
1: eventually it. publish it. But yeah. then they they can definitely not publish results, too.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's possible that there would be scientists, let's say, in the pay of a ma- vaccine manufacturer, who might get tapped on the shoulder by their boss and say, we want to you know, look into this, find out what would happen if there were a major retrospective study comparing chronic illnesses between a, uh, an unvaxxed and a, a vaxxed group. So could you do sort of a preliminary, you know, semi-study on this and give us a sense of what it might come out looking like? Is, is that the sort of thing that might have happened?
1: It might have, but I think that's a, a, a less likely scenario because personally I think they know that they would get bad news. And if they have any sort of record, Emails that this happened somewhere down the road. Somebody's going to have some kind of lawsuit that's going to have discovery and they don't want that on the record. So I think they would, they would do their utmost to avoid that. The hmm. CDC or the NIH, however, they, they might have done it.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and that actually, Sounds like something that arguably might be considered a criminal cover-up. Uh... Oh,
1: I think it is. I, I, there should be indictments. You know, I, how many kids have been hurt because they're still saying vaccines are safe and effective when there's no evidence that that this is what it comes down to. Okay, we don't know if any single vaccine on the schedule. If the benefits outweigh the risks for any single one, we certainly don't know if that's true for the entire schedule. And I would venture to bet that it's absolutely the opposite and that, you know, that as far as we what we should do is vaccinate the fewest number of people, the the least amount, if we want kids to be actually healthy.
0: Mm -hmm. And then that leads up to the issue of uh, efficacy. There's the safe part. And right. this book uh, presents compelling evidence that these vaccines have never been proven safe, and that if indeed they were safe, there was a very simple, cheap, straightforward way to prove it safe, and yep. that the government and big pharma yep. and the universities and science folks in, in thrall to these entities have intentionally made sure that no such studies <laughs> were conducted. Exactly. Uh, and and so the the safety that's the safety issue, and then there's the efficacy issue, and Here's where the vaccine myth comes into play, the myth being that back in the bad old days before vaccines, people were dying left and right mm. of this long list of terrible communicable diseases, and this wonderful healthy paradise that we now inhabit was built purely on the back of vaccines, <laughs> with a little help from antibiotics <laughs> and, and other forms of treatment. And that's what everybody believed for a while. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But, so what yeah, happened to I- that? <laughs> Well, as it turns out, if you actually look at the historical record and certain um, sociologists, mostly I believe they were sociologists, uh, have looked at the history. And it turns out that huge percentages of the decline in mortality from infectious disease happened before antibiotics existed. They happened before the vaccines for particular um, uh, diseases existed, and it happened for diseases that we've never had effective uh, treatments for or vaccines for. So they're all dropping at an amazing rate. So if you look at the historical record, what changed? What changed was the uh, centralized sanitation services in cities, the the drinking water, making sure that people had clean drinking water was huge. Um, getting getting to know the germ theory and genesis of disease helped people understand that uh, hygiene, personal hygiene, washing your clothes, washing your hands, that that was an important thing. And once Once those things started to happen, the the infectious disease mortality rates just plummeted. And then when you added in refrigeration to enable city dwellers to get good food off-season or from large distances away, that changed the nutritional profile. (laughs) One one thing that people don't think of, I, I certainly didn't think of, is that back in the battle days, the the streets were ruled by horses, and horses poop everywhere they go. And so they, they were just leaving huge amounts of excrement in the streets where flies would gather, and it was just a, a horrible sanitation nightmare. And it, it also, uh, the book talks about how many horses would die on a, any old, random day in New York city and they'd have to be cleared away. The carcasses would have to be cleared away too. So just even taking away, you know, the advent of the motor car meant that streets did, were not covered with horses that were making the place a filthy mess. And that changed so much.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if you look at the graphs of the decline of these various diseases, Uh, It it seems that – well, the book argues that essentially the vast majority of the decline in mortality from infectious diseases – happened uh, regardless of vaccines and even yep. regardless of, of all forms of treatment, largely, yeah. but especially vaccines. Vaccines contributed, you know, only marginally at best to that yep. decline in mortality. It argues, however, that some declines in morbidity, that is people actually yes. catching the illness, uh, are indeed attributable to uh, a yes. few vaccines. So it's not as if the vaccines don't work at all. Um, it's, it's just that their role has been grossly exaggerated in yes. the vaccine myth.
1: For instance, we do know that the, the measles vaccine is effective. Uh, I know people who say, oh no, the measles is just as, just as common. It's just that it's being diagnosed as something else. No, I'm sorry. When I was a kid, people got the measles and people don't get the measles now, except for the kids who get it from, from the vaccine at, you know, 12 to 15 months of age. Um, but it definitely has changed dramatically. There's no question that. Measles is not present in the way it was in the 1950s. And so, yes, there is a, the, the efficacy is there for some of the vaccines, but. There's a cost to it that's never discussed. I don't know if you, you remember uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, an outbreak of measles in New York And. That was used as a justification to get rid of what they call the religious exemption to vaccination in New York. And the idea is that we want to eradicate measles. We want to get to zero cases of measles. Now the, in public health, the the idea, uh, it's a, it's a well known thing that the last Few cases are going to be much more expensive to get rid of than the first 80% or so. But the question is, what is the cost? It's not not just money. We are, the more you insist that we get down to zero, the more you have to vaccinate kids who are at risk. And so there, there are costs that nobody is counting into the equation.
0: Yeah it seems they they don't want to to know the cost it's it's very yes. bizarre that you know the cost benefit analysis is so basic to industrial capitalism yes. and and you know so many different enterprises uh, and yet in this one area, there's such an aversion to actually yep. learning what the costs are. It's
1: very strange. Yep. They, they never do a truly inclusive cost benefit analysis. And that's the problem. That's why we're seeing so much chronic illness now. Or one of the big reasons, I think, is that we are over vaccinating just like and I don't understand on some level why we have so much uh, backlash against these kinds of conversations about vaccines, because we know we are over antibiotic in kids, right? We have, we dispense way too many antibiotics and everybody acknowledges that. They know that it's a bad thing and that we're still doing it and that it's causing health problems. Same thing is happening with vaccines, but we're not allowed to talk about it.
0: So if we were going to try to get a sense of of the costs and benefits of vaccines, and I've I've seen conversations about that with the COVID vaccines, for example, and I've been convinced that it's it's absolutely obvious that young healthy people are unlikely to be mm-hmm. uh, benefiting. Uh, be, yep. you know, th- there's no net benefit for the young healthy people with the COVID vaccines. That's just obvious. It's there's a question about the older people and the less healthy people. Yes, uh, but with these uh, these other vaccines. If y- this is something that you probably know more about than I do, because I-, I studied this back in the 90s and then sort of haven't followed it super closely uh, since then. But I-, I wonder which of the vaccines you think would be good candidates to pass the cost benefit test and which ones would be most likely to fail.
1: Ooh. Um I don't think. Any of them would pass for some individuals. Um, I think that some might pass for some individuals. And uh, see, this is the thing. One of the things that we're we're uh, expected to believe somehow is that vaccines are a one one-size, one size fits all solution. And that's not the case. A vaccine designer knows that there's a bell curve of immune response and that at one end of the curve is going to be the under responders and at the other end of the curve are going to be the over responders. And at both ends of the curve, particularly the over responding side, there's more likelihood for um, injury, injury and harm to be done by this particular biologic. And that's the case for really any drug. But it's very much the case for vaccines because they're always uh, playing off efficacy versus safety. A fully effective vaccine for everyone is going to hurt more people than a lesser effective vaccine. So probably... Uh, you see, there there are a lot of things you have to count in, too, because more studies have been done um, in recent years that have indicated that certain types of cancer and certain types of autoimmune um, conditions like uh, multiple sclerosis are less likely to develop in adulthood if you have a childhood history of a few of these benign um, childhood illnesses, such as chickenpox or uh, measles or mumps. If you have those in your background, your immune system—they have—it seems—an ability to help tune the immune system. So.
0: Well, I get I the trifecta. I, I had all of those when I was. You had
1: child. all of those, yeah. and you probably function pretty well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing fine. I'm keeping up with my uh, my son at one-on-one basketball, but.
1: <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> So so yeah so um so yeah you, you can say okay well the measles vaccine is very effective so if you don't have an off the chart response to it one dose of the measles vaccine might be helpful in that you won't get the measles but maybe if you did get the measles you wouldn't get ms down the road so it's hard to know exactly what that that trade off is going to be and i think one of the things that The medical profession doesn't trust us to assess our own health histories, our own family's health histories, like my family, for instance. I come from a very, very big family, and there are no stories of horrible infectious disease death. That's not how my family goes. Mm -hmm. And so my family, I think, we have pretty good immune systems. We fight stuff off. But that means that if we get vaccinated like crazy, our immune systems go into hyperdrive and they do not so great things. So we're in the category of people who probably should have way fewer than the average person.
0: Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I wonder if it will ever be possible to sort of tailor uh, these kinds of treatment vaccines and other forms of treatment to people uh, much more specifically than we do
1: now. Well, I think the authors kind of make a case for that, too. You know, there there are tests you can do to see who's more susceptible. We don't know because nobody's going on the record saying that, yes, the kids who overreact are going to be the ones who get hurt. But it's probably the case. And if they did do some studies to determine that, they probably would find out a lot about who is actually susceptible. And once we know who's more susceptible, we know to recommend that they don't vaccinate at the same rate, at the very least.
0: You know, if we wanted to try to make excuses for the uh, <laughs> the criminals, uh-huh. uh, we might say, you know, they might believe that given what herd immunity may come from these vaccination programs, and this book actually suggests that in many cases, there isn't really very much right. contribution to herd immunity. Right. But in any case, the, these folks may actually think that, You know, they're covering up these ill effects from vaccines because they're convinced that the net benefit is still going to be positive, given the herd immunity situation, and that, in fact, it would be kind of unfair for free riders to not get vaccinated and be perfectly healthy because all the other people you know took their vaxes and took the risk of of you know having autism and things like that and and these darn anti vaxxers didn't you know they, they yeah. didn't ever got vaxed yeah. they're free riders, and that wouldn't be fair and so and so so they they have this ideology that may be hiding the truth uh because people will react so strongly and emotionally to this truth that yeah the vac- vaccines are dangerous some people yeah. have yeah you know, there's clearly a problem there uh, a lot of people have been harmed by vaccines but they might think that the total number who would be harmed by infectious diseases if we massively rolled back vaccines and if we had uh, crimes against humanity trials for these people who are covering up the truth that uh the the world in which the truth is covered up is all in all ways better than the world in which the truth emerges uh, yeah I, yeah I'm, you
1: can see that attitude it It does exist. There are definitely true believers
0: mm-hmm. um, and and okay, so to getting to herd immunity then uh if some of these folks think that it's really crucial to try to maintain herd immunity uh, for some of these illnesses by keeping the vaccination program going, and that's why the truth must be concealed uh, what's the reality? of herd immunity. Where which diseases might there be some and which ones not?
1: Well, uh it it turns out that mostly it's the live vaccines that actually do generate some kind of herd immunity. And those are the measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, chickenpox that is. Um and they do. They do um Like we talked about the measles, the measles vaccine is pretty effective and it does actually reduce the number, actual number of cases, and it reduces the ability of the body to sustain an infection and transmit an infection. That is not the case for a lot of vaccines. In particular, um, one that a lot of people don't know about is the acellular pertussis vaccine. The acellular pertussis vaccine is a different formulation from the one that, uh, was common. I think it was until the mid eighties anyway, maybe even a little later. And that one did actually, the old version, what they call the whole cell pertussis version of the vaccine, did reduce the potential for a body to, um, to have a pertussis infection. And so it also reduced the ability to transmit an infection because you weren't likely to have the infection. But the acellular pertussis vaccine actually doesn't have that same effect. People can have a pertussis infection that is asymptomatic if they've had the acellular pertussis vaccine. So This reminds me of
0: COVID vaccines, by the way. What'd you say? It reminds oh, me yes, of COVID, COVID vaccines.
1: vaccines. Yes, yes. They do not prevent infection and transmission. What they prevent is the symptoms of the illness. So that means, I don't know if you remember the story of typhoid Mary. Uh,
0: very vaguely. Uh, tell us.
1: She, she, um, she worked for a bunch of different families where people died of typhus or typhoid, I guess. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing. Uh, and, she was a carrier, but she did not have any symptoms. So because she worked for them and she was their cook, I believe, she was transmitting uh this disease to these people who got very, very ill, but she was fine. So that's what happens when you have a carrier who is asymptomatic and they don't know that they're carrying this infection. They transmit it just like typhoid Mary did. So if people get the acellular pertussis vaccine, they can have a pertussis infection and transmit it to the people around them without ever knowing at all. And that gets to be a pretty dangerous situation. And the CDC has been, I don't know if you, you've you heard of this thing called cocooning, where they've been recommending that all the grandparents around a newborn get vaccinated with yeah, the yeah, DTaP. Yeah,
0: the, the book mentioned that and criticize yeah. the
1: practice. So, yeah, it it's they I don't know if they officially still recommend it anymore, but it, it's still out there. You you still hear about um new moms saying that their their parents have to get vaccinated before that, that they can see their kids. Now the problem is that they're getting vaccinated with an acellular pertussis vaccine. So, if they had a pertussis infection, they wouldn't even know it and they'd be passing it right on to their newborns. Mm-hmm. Their newborn grandchildren
0: yeah, that seems really counterproductive uh right know, because when, when people actually are symptomatic then they stay home and they don't transmit exactly. as much so if you vaccinate people so that they will become carriers asymptomatic carriers you're actually helping the disease spread aren't you
1: yep
0: no oh, yep. uh, <laughs> yep. yeah it's it's uh some of this stuff is quite unbelievable well as if i recall uh from, uh, from my reading and from my <laughs> like 30 years ago studying all this, was it, was it measles, diphtheria, um, and uh, pertussis are, uh, three, uh, the three diseases that we have these vaccines for that caused substantial mortality back in the day. And you've, you've just mentioned the uh, measles vaccine that actually the live, is it live measles vaccine that, that helps uh, spark herd immunity? Um, possibly by people shedding uh, the vaccine, and so even unvaccinated people uh, benefit, quote-unquote, from it. Uh, so would you say that the measles vaccine might be a rare success story or not?
1: Well, if you go straightly, strictly, uh, strictly by what's in the book, yes, you could say that. Um, I have looked into other studies that didn't show up in the book that makes me less convinced because I think we cannot get to the point where measles is eradicated and so we are because we cannot get to that point and the reason why is because measles is so contagious. uh, We were able to eradicate smallpox because it's not that contagious but measles is very very contagious so it's very hard to eliminate you really need a very 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 high level of herd immunity in order to eradicate it now say so if we can't eradicate it that means that as people get another another uh factor that is often not considered is waning immunity and there are studies that are starting to indicate when in the sixties, seventies, we were told one measles vaccine and you're good for life. It's good for life, but now they're starting to see that immunity does wane.
0: Well, pa- at least not begins. as fast as with COVID shots.
1: Right. Oh, definitely not as fast. It's it's def- it's more on the the order of decades, a decade or two decades, but it does wane. Your uh, ability to create the antibodies drops off, especially if you're not encountering the wild infection if you're encountering the wild infection that acts as a little booster shot too but if you're not encountering it then you're not getting that little boost and that's what they they think is what the reason why more people are getting shingles now is people are not encountering uh chickenpox so that that will keep that at bay but anyway
0: so so bottom line is that it's really not clear that any vaccines uh, have benefits that outweigh their costs and drawbacks. And and maybe we should do the research to find out uh, what the real costs and benefits are. Well, I I don't see how anybody could disagree with that, but I'm sure somebody will. Anyway, I think we're (laughs) (laughs) we're hitting the end of the hour. Thank you so much, Zoe O'Toole, Uh, the editor of Turtles All the Way Down vaccine science and myth it's highly recommended as an ideal introduction to this very complex topic and it's it's well written understandable well documented very user-friendly um and i hope it is a game changer so thank you so much zoe thank you. The great work this is truth jihad radio kevin barrett coming back in the next hour with philosophy professor sterling harwood to pit flat earth theory against the Bible, or is it with the Bible? I don't know. We'll, we'll figure out when we talk to Sterling. <laughs> is it...